according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. As we get started, you can turn to Luke chapter 10 this morning. Luke chapter 10. I'll get our projector back up and running again. Before we get started, I wanted to share a CEF story um, with the CEF folks here today. I uh, Actually, this came from John Eichmann. I had spoken to Pastor Eichmann last night, and or night before last, uh, to kind of get an update on, on Linda. And, and uh, we, we're lifting her up in prayer. The, the doctors are convinced that her brain tumor has returned, and so we're... We're praying for that. They're going to do PET scans and other things coming up, possibly radiation in starting in January, targeted radiation to try to get that. But I mentioned that uh, some of the ladies here were involved with CEF, and he was very excited about that and interested in that because he had just recently done a funeral. He had performed one funeral and then attended another one. And I, and I think I'm telling the story right. Um, for a husband and a wife. Uh, and the husband was a bit of a character. He, he'd uh, been involved. He was in the Merchant Marine in, in World War II and uh, had actually had two ships sunk out under him. And uh, each time, uh, floating out there in the Pacific, making vows and promises to God, you know, save me and save me and I'll serve you and all this stuff. And then each time he got rescued, then he'd end up at Pearl Harbor just getting drunk and, and ignoring the Lord and things like that. Well... He actually did get saved, fortunately, in, in the in later years, in the 50s sometime. And he married this lady. And she uh, she was a strong believer. And, and I guess, I don't remember all the details now of, of how they met or got married or things like that. But anyway, she uh, uh, they got serious about their faith and walking in the Lord and doing things in service. And one of the things they got involved with was child evangelism. Uh, she more so than him, from what I can recall. And... Uh, uh, because at her funeral, and they got involved in Seattle, and, and they chose the part of town that we used to call Chinatown. Now it's called uh, the International District. It's got more of a politically correct name, yeah. But anyway, got involved in Chinatown with Child Evangelism Fellowship uh, with uh, Laotians and Cambodians, uh, boat people from uh, Southern Asia in uh, the 60s and 70s and that. And anyway, um decades go by and years go by and whatever and then she passes and they hold her funeral they're expecting a small group of 30 or so and they had over 200 because uh when it was released in the newspaper all these folks that actually credit her with their salvation <laughs> uh i mean it was packed out with cambodians and laotians and asian folks that uh you know are now adults but they were little kids 30 years ago and um just an amazing testimony to uh to your labors in the lord and i wanted to wanted to share that and encourage you with that here this morning i think his funeral was a little bit different story it was uh you know drinking buddies or whatever i don't know who came to his but for hers at least it was the testimony of all those children that came to faith in christ due to her faithfulness so what a delight all right luke chapter 10 this morning luke 10 Again, I'm using borrowed equipment, so uh, we'll just stay flexible. But grace is a wonderful thing, and grace is going to uh, bring a new laptop to me this coming, uh, the promise within two weeks, that uh, Dell got tired of putting parts in my other laptop, and so they said, you know what, we're just going to give you a whole new machine. How about that? And I said, thank you. <laughs> that's, a, that's a grace provision. How about that? All right, Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan story, which is not really about the Good Samaritan. It's about the lawyer who was putting the Lord God to the test. And by hearing the Good Samaritan story, he was provided the doctrinal teaching necessary for him to understand what agape love is about. How to apply agape love. When he asks, who's my neighbor? Uh, he comes to find out that his idea of agape love was a little bit short of what uh, the standard of God's love is all about. So that's what we're looking at here today. It begins with verse 25. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test in violation of the scripture that says, Thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? All right. Well, that's where we are. Before we begin, though, it's important that we are not only in fellowship, but also humble before the authority of truth. So let's take a moment of silent prayer to prepare for teaching, shall we pray? 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for the truth of your word and the, the privilege and blessing that it is to be used by you, Father. And I just celebrate how faithful you are that not only do we have, uh, we've already had a couple of prayer meetings this morning. We have a Bible class now set before us. And if you delay long enough, there's a child evangelism uh, ministry to take place this afternoon. And we just commit everything into your hands, Father. You are the one that's at work in us, both the will and the do of your good pleasure. And Father, we pray that through us as your tools, that you will bring about the maximum glory for your Son on this day. Father, uh, for this message, we pray for a clear understanding, in particular as we try to uh, step back and get perhaps a big picture understanding of your plan and your word and what it is you are attempting to uh, uh, accomplish in and through us. I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding that we might know the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of the power at work within us. So we thank you for such promises and such resources. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. In terms of this story, we've already seen the context for it, how it follows the uh, previous uh, episode where the Lord was praising God the Father. He was praising God the Father specifically for hiding things from certain folks and revealing things to other folks, and in particular the wise and intelligent, which we understand according to cosmos wisdom, means that they're not humble before the Lord God. They have their own wisdom, the wisdom from below, which is earthly, natural, and demonic, uh, as opposed to the wisdom from above, which is first pure and sensible in the, the uh, principles of wisdom that we glean out of the book of James. And he reveals these things to babes. In other words, to those that are humble, to those that are teachable, to those that are trusting in what their fathers provide. And uh, so this episode is actually a vivid illustration of that very prayer. Jesus Christ was praising the Father for that very thing. And then, lo and behold, here comes Namikos Tis. Now, Namikos Tis, that's my name for him, since uh, Scripture didn't give him a name. Uh, scripture doesn't tell us what this guy's name was. Uh, I just simply have to call him what the Greek text is. Namikos Tis is a certain lawyer. Uh, a certain lawyer takes his stand in order in taking his stand, putting himself in that authoritative position in order to put the Lord his God to the test. And that's verse 25. Uh, identical vocabulary terminology here is consistent that he is violating Scripture by doing this. And uh, we had some references here to what a nomikos is, an expert in the law. And, and I hope some of this might... Uh, resonate with us because you you would ask perhaps on the one hand well what's so wrong with being an expert in the law what's so wrong with learning about the bible and, and we might want to become experts in the bible it'd be great if you can outline all 66 books and, and forwards and backwards and you know your bible like a walking bible encyclopedia that's great but don't miss the point for why it is you're supposed to be learning the bible in the first place as, uh, as the Lord told the Pharisees, you know, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that bear witness concerning me. And so the whole point to revealed scripture is to come to Christ, is to know Christ, is to become Christ as he molds us and transforms us into the image of his beloved son. So this um, is an interesting concept and one that I hope we can learn from. The vocabulary there, ek peradzo, as I pointed out, to put to the test, to tempt. It's a compound from peradzo, to test or to tempt. Uh, the devil himself is called ha peradzon, the tempter. And uh, ek peradzo is a compound of that. It intensifies it, and we see it utilized in Matthew 4, 7, Luke 4, 12, where the devil is tempting the Lord in the wilderness. And uh, we see it here, of course, where the lawyer is tempting the Lord. Uh, it's just uh, you know a different snake in a different setting. It's not the it's not the serpent in the garden. It's not the devil in the wilderness. It's the lawyer in uh, in uh, Perea, all right, and that's or uh, in Judea, and that's what we're dealing with here. And the prohibition comes in Deuteronomy 6:16 that uh, thou shalt not, all right. This is a thou shalt not put the Lord your God to the test. Now his question was similar to the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And uh, in Acts 16.31, as we read that, it was a very positive question. The answer was given. The faith response was applied. And, and things uh, worked out very well there in Philippi. Uh, almost an identical question here where he says, what, uh, th what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But you understand that the motivation is contrary. 
His motivation is not to receive eternal life. His motivation is to tempt the Lord because in his mind he already has eternal life. That he is the expert in the law and he's hoping through this temptation, through this snare, he's hoping to expose a fraud is what he's hoping to do. This is a gotcha question. See, this is like the media drooling over uh, Sarah Palin or something and they're, they're looking to throw a question out there that's going to make her stumble kind of a thing. And that's what's going on here. Uh, he thinks he's going to cause Christ to stumble. And we'll go by some of the subpoints we covered last week. His reply was interesting because he went where the lawyer was coming from. He went to his realm. See, almost like, you know, if, if, you're, if you're giving the gospel to an athlete, uh, you might think about using those passages in Scripture that talk about running with endurance. You might think about those uh, passages of Scripture that use the uh, Olympic uh, games metaphors or things about boxing or anything of that nature. If you're uh, speaking to a child, use the passages in Scripture that talk about the children coming to Jesus or anything that they might relate to uh, and so forth. All right. Uh, um, <laughs> there was uh, oh, can't, who was this now? But somebody I was reading. I, I read too much. But I was reading somebody, and they were talking about they they found that that Mary and Martha passage was wonderful in in uh, doing Bible studies and giving a biblical background to to busy housewives and things where they got all kinds of stuff going on. See, and well, we got that coming up. That's our next episode uh, after this one in the in the uh, Life of Christ series, but. In order to be able to use a variety of passages to make a variety of different approaches to any number of different targets, uh, what does that mean? It means you've got to have a pretty broad understanding of the Scripture. You've got to have a, a breadth and a width of understanding to be able to, to see where the person's coming from and say, all right, I'm going to use this realm and, uh, and apply it here in this uh, particular ministry. And so that's what the Lord does. And he uses the law as that basis. Now, his answer is correct as far as it goes. The, the lawyer gives a synthesis of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. In other words, when he combined these, he answered in verse 27, Luke 10.27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He synthesized a verse out of Deuteronomy and a verse out of Leviticus, and he put them together in, in, a, in a wonderful fashion. It's not unlike what we do in our doctrinal studies when we uh, search the scriptures, when we categorize uh, areas of doctrine, you, you conduct uh, uh, inductive studies of, of everything in the scripture that pertains to a particular subject, and you categorize them and you classify them and you determine what order to put them in. Uh, you know, he didn't just put Leviticus first because Leviticus comes in front of Deuteronomy, but he put the preeminence of loving the Lord God first out of Deuteronomy and then adding you shall love your neighbor in uh, Leviticus 19. And so we do that. We put doctrinal studies together and we classify our scriptures and we structure them and we organize them and all the rest. Okay. Now, if he was absolutely brilliant, he might have done something like introduction and definition, development and application, summary and conclusion, you know, something like that. He might have put a PowerPoint slideshow together. I'm teasing, okay? Uh, but what I'm pointing out, though, is that this is a legitimate thing to do. It is absolutely legitimate to compare Scripture with Scripture and synthesize your studies. That's what it's designed to do. So this uh, synthesis was correct in itself. However, it also contained a logical fallacy. And you can have the greatest logic in the world, but if your starting point is off base... If your premise that you begin with is wrong, then even if you're faithfully logical every step of the way after that, you're still flawed to begin with because you're given. Your starting point was, was off track. And that's what happens here. Okay? Flawed premise. And if you, if you ever study logic or do anything, this is called the bare assertion fallacy, where you just simply make a bare assertion, claim it to be true at face value, and then you kind of find out later on, well, okay, it's not really true. The bare assertion itself is false. But here's the fallacy, that adherence to the law produces a worthiness to earn eternal life. That's wrong. That's wrong. And yet, here's an expert in the law who was under that assumption. And most experts in the law were under that assumption. Jesus told the Pharisees that. You search the Scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life. Bible study doesn't give you eternal life. Paul spoke about the righteousness that is found in the law, blameless. But does that what produces eternal life? No, he needed the Lord's righteousness imputed to his account. See, so we have Hebrews 10:1 also 
If I had my own laptop up here, you would have another passage in there. Galatians chapter 3. Not on the screen, but you can write it in yourself. Galatians chapter 3, and we'll turn there next. So let's start with Hebrews 10. We'll do a little bit of flipping here this morning. Hebrews 10. And I love the author of Hebrews. Because it seems like section by section, every so often, he just boils it all down. In case you got lost in what preceded him, he'll just boil it all down and say, all right, here you go. Kind of like, uh, I like the way chapter 8 starts off. Where in chapter 8 he says, now the main point in what has been said is this. <laughs> all right, just in case through the first seven chapters, maybe you've lost track of where he was going. So he says, all right, now the main point is this. We have a high priest. And praise God for him, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, we have something similar to that here in verse in chapter 10. Let's just boil it down, give you a big picture statement. The law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they continually offer year by year, make perfect those who draw near. You've got to understand that. The law can't do it. And it was never designed to do it. From its very beginning, it was not designed to do it. It was designed to be a shadow of the good things to come. It was designed to be a preview. See, it'd be like, uh, you know, you, you spend your whole life watching movie previews, but you never actually go to the movie. You know, I guess you could do that if you wanted. Uh, just watch nothing but movie previews. But and, and to be honest, in some movies, if you've seen the previews, you've seen all the best parts anyway. And I've regretted certain movies where the previews look kind of cool and then the movie itself was a waste of time. But for the most part, if the movie is done well, then the preview excites you about it. And then you go and see what the real movie is doing. Right. And then the movie itself is the is the reality. All right. The law was never designed to be. The, uh, the, the, the real movie it was never designed to be the, the reality. It was designed to be the foreshadowing, the preview. And it was designed to point the way towards what would accomplish the Father's purpose. But it in itself could not do that. It could never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. You know, the Day of Atonement, we just had it. The, the, the Jewish observance of Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, the Day of Atonement, the High Holy Days of Israel. Uh, we just passed that here in our calendar not too long ago. And, uh, and guess what? They're going to do it again next year. All right? Uh, Lord willing, rapture pending and whatever else. All right? They're going to do it again next year. And uh, they may even be able to do it uh, with Antichrist permission to do it for three and a half years. See? If indeed we get raptured here pretty quick. It goes on. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? <laughs> they never can have a tetelestai moment where the high priest can say, all right, this is it. Never again. It's only for this year and then next year they do it again. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. And I think in a way, the Roman Catholic Church does the same thing. Because every single mass, what are they doing? Once again, they're crucifying the body of Christ every single time. And yet, missing the whole point to the work of Christ on the cross as a once and for all done it's like, you know, read Hebrews sometimes. All right. Now, if you read Hebrews, you find out that each believer is a priest and <laughs> you find out some other things here. All right. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's what the Lamb of God does. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then you find out uh, in verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. That work is complete. He's now in session, seated victoriously at the right hand of the Father. And uh, verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time. Something the law could not do. The law could never make these uh, worshipers perfect. But by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. For all time. So you just love this, the, the, the eternal life that he provides, the eternal security of that sacrifice, perfected for all time. 
How do you lose that? See. All right. In addition to Hebrews 10, I would also like to take you back to Galatians chapter 3. So let's go back to Galatians. First and second Corinthians, Galatians. And um, rather than read the entire chapter, I just want to spotlight some things here about the law and why was the law given. Because he asked this question in verse 2. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? <laughs> when, when you received God the Holy Spirit, was that because you were observant of Mosaic law? Offering sacrifices, following rituals, doing all this Old Testament Jewish stuff? Or did you believe in Jesus Christ and to eternal life by grace through faith in Christ? And got saved and received the Holy Spirit? Huh. Well, that's a trick question because the obvious answer is yes. That's how they receive the Holy Spirit. So then he goes on. He says, well then, <laughs> are you so foolish? I think we have other idioms we could use today. Like, are you out of your mind? Are you stupid? You know? <laughs> Back in the jail, we used to say, are you smoking crack? <laughs> Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you going to go back to the law for your sanctification? You, you see, it didn't do anything for you in your justification. Are you going to go back now to legal observance and through the flesh, through human effort? You're going to try to uh, operate? No, it's going to be the same way. You're going to walk by faith just like you were saved by faith. That's what you've got to do. Now, it goes down... Um, verse 10, as many as are the works of the law, as are of the works of the law, are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, you break one point of the law, you're cursed. You violated the whole law. You are an object of the curse, as per Mosaic law. Now that uh, no one is justified by the law before God is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith. And that uh, goes back to uh, Habakkuk. If you haven't read Habakkuk lately, then you're missing out. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them, live by them or die by them, in the sense that as soon as you break one, then you're under the curse, and you've got to live with it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So there's this element of curse that applies, and there's a whole doctrinal realm here I don't have time for today, but understand that he became the curse to get us out of that other curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So it's not going to be through law, it's going to come through faith. Now, verse 17, what I am saying is this. <laughs> okay, I think the author of Hebrews picked up on that from Paul's usage. And some people think Paul wrote Hebrews because of that idiom. But I think that the author of Hebrews was Barnabas. And in close association with Paul, he developed this style. Why then the law? All right. Verse 17. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. This is what we want to pick up on today. And if we gain no further ground in the life of Christ, we're going to bear fruit today by having an understanding of what law is about and understanding that plan of God from Alpha to Omega. All right? Why the law? Here's a lawyer convinced that by observing the law, he inherits eternal life. Is that why God gave the law? All right? Critical that we understand that, and, and the blessing is that we're going to be able to turn to Galatians and find the Holy Spirit's interpretation here as far as why, then, the law. We don't have to invent something ourselves or figure this out. But it is a flawed premise that adherence to the law produces worthiness to earn eternal life. It's just not going to happen. That's not what it was designed to do in the first place. All right? So, point being, 430 years later, it comes after the promise. Okay, And so it's important to understand what Paul's saying here in Galatians 3 is that 
If you're a believer in the dispensation of the church, you better have a framework from Alpha to Omega and understand your place in God's plan. That's what he's saying right there. Can't you see that? (laughs) Right there in uh, verse 17. He says, read the new ABC reader that's coming out. In, In not so many words, but that's what he says. Because the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. So if God's making the I will promises of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, why then 430 years later is he giving the law through Moses in Exodus? Why? And if you can't answer the why, what is he saying here in Galatians 3? He's calling them names, calling them foolish. If you're not, if you can't sort out your dispensation you operate in, what are you really doing? Okay. <laughs> you know, people get their uh, uh, dispensations confused, and, and uh, a big application of that is they, that they uh, don't differentiate between law and grace. And they plunge into legalism. They don't understand grace. Even though they're saved by grace, just like the Galatians, they got saved by grace, but you're not walking by grace. So it goes on. The inheritance is based where if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. See, he wants to know what must I do to inherit eternal life. This is the inheritance that he's interested in. And he thinks it's coming through the law, but it's not. It's coming through a promise. What was the promise? I will bless you. The uh, land, seed, and blessing promise. Now, um, God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And the neat thing, when God says, I will, that's his promise. What what did we have before the the dispensation of Israel, age of law? We had the age of promise. See? And so, um, now I don't have my laptop here today. I I can't show you the diagram I was going to show but um, I suppose I could draw pictures so that we understand the timeline. Turn this on here and switch to that. Something will work. Cool. Autofocus. All right. And we are so spoiled, of course, over here in the church. This is where we are. And we lose track of the fact (laughs) that in prior ages, they didn't operate like we operate. All right. And our stewardship is in the church. There uh, was an age of the apostles. And now we're in the age of the local church. No more apostles. The body of Christ functions in local churches, local flocks under local pastor teachers. That's our current age, all right? And hopefully it's going to end today. We're waiting for a trumpet, and then we get to launch vertically. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. In fact, I even have, that's why I drive a rapture-ready vehicle, all right? Drive around top down. Wait, as soon as that trumpet sounds, I'm going to beat the rest of you guys up there. As I go top down. All right, now, prior to the church, though, we've got to understand Israel used to be the steward. They have not been replaced. They will return to their stewardship after the rapture. Israel resumes because they have uh, more punishment on the way, and then they have a kingdom on the way, and God promised them both. Um, before Israel was the steward, Gentiles were the stewards. From Adam to Abraham, there were no Jews. Gentiles were the stewards. And all of this is going to be broken down for you in the new ABC reader. Now, what we're focusing on in Galatians 3.17 and why it's critical to understand this nomikos that comes to Jesus and says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus then takes him to the law and says, what does it read to you? And under law, if he loves the Lord God and if he loves his neighbor, he's going to receive eternal life. He just encapsulates the law into two points. All right. So what we want to understand is that before there was a law, there was promise. 
And then after promise was law. And then I think there was something even greater than law, something greater than the temple is here, something greater than Solomon is here, something greater than the law is here, and that's the age of the incarnation. That the life and ministry of Jesus Christ formed its own age within the dispensation of Israel. But you have the age of promise, the age of law, the age of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Coming up, there's an age of tribulation, and then there's an age of millennial reign, millennial kingdom. All right, so what Galatians 3 is dealing with now, follow me with this, what Galatians 3 is now doing is saying, why do we have the law? 430 years after a promise was made. Why the law? And the question then is asked here in Galatians, the law, the promise came first, and then here comes the law. So, what was happening there? Was the promise being replaced? Was the promise being nullified, canceled? Did the law replace it? Why did the law follow it? See, point being, just because it follows it doesn't mean it replaces it. I think some replacement theology people ought to figure that out too. The church followed Israel, but that doesn't mean the church replaces Israel. Okay? So, what is the basis of promise? What is the basis of law? And why do we have law? That's the... uh, concept here for what gets uh, developed in not only Galatians but Hebrews and other passages in the New Testament part of what uh, Cliff's going to get drilled on in his ordination exam (laughs) because uh, we're not going to ordain any man that uh, isn't clear on his dispensations all right Now, the promise. The promise. Let's go back to the promise. Genesis 12. And I don't mind doing this. Like I said, uh, it's it's a fruitful exercise today to do this before moving on in the outline. uh, Because we've got two and three to cover today as well. This is such a flawed premise. First of all, you've got to assume that somebody can keep the whole thing, which we know they can't. And if you violate the law, then you become the curse. Um, the actual truth is is that uh, when God himself fulfills the law with perfect fulfillment, it's going to demonstrate his worthiness to provide eternal life, not to earn eternal life. And there's some contrast we'll talk about there. But all right, Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. This is an I will statement. It is a statement that affirms the covenant promises of God himself as an unconditional covenant. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. Now, um, even... Prior to this, one of the things you want to keep in mind is that um, uh, mankind has been operating under a seed of the woman promise for redemption. That mankind has fallen, and well, maybe I better back up to that too. All right, Genesis chapter 3. As long as we're in Genesis, flip back nine more chapters. Genesis chapter 3. Because he wants to know what he has to do to earn eternal life. People you talk to might want to know the same thing. What do I got to do to get saved? They say, I'm kind of a bad person. I think I'm going to die and go to hell. You know anything that might help with that? <laughs> All right. I say, well, you probably are a bad person. That doesn't have anything to do with it. All right. Genesis 3. You know, Genesis 1 and 2 is creation. Genesis 3 is the fall. And they've uh, disobeyed God. They've become sinners. They're naked. They're hiding. And uh, they're facing now consequences for their rebellion. And even while they do that, comes the promise of salvation. Even while God is pronouncing the judgment. And uh, the words to the serpent in verse 14. And then he continues that. In his words to the serpent comes the promise of redemption where he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. 
And the reason why a seed is important, because we, we get into it again with Abraham and his seed. And uh, what's in view here, of course, is Christ, the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the one, the, the promised coming one, and what he's going to do to resolve this problem of fallen man. So I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. This is the serpent seed, the offspring of the adversary, the, the brood of devils, and in particular, the person of Antichrist, the only begotten of Satan, who, uh, is the, who he magnifies to stand opposed to the only begotten of the Father. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. All right, there's the contrast. Uh, yes, the seed of the woman will suffer injury. Yes, the seed of the woman will, will experience hurt. In the process of this. And yet it's not a fatal hurt. It's not terminal. It's not the end of the story. Uh, that uh, even though he's crushed for our iniquities, he's bruised for our iniquities, and uh, by his scourging are we healed, that doesn't end him. He comes back from the dead and has the victorious eternity. Satan, on the other hand, his injury in this angelic conflict is permanent. It's a head wound. It's described here in this in this uh, terminology so here's the here's the initial promise now they're under this promise and they're under this promise for the entire dispensation of the gentiles that the seed of the woman a child will be born who will crush the serpent's head that's what they're looking for that salvation by grace through faith in a coming serpent head crusher all right. They don't know his name is Jesus Christ. They don't know that he's going to be born of a virgin. They don't know that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to die on a cross. In the proto-evangelism of the first gospel message to the Gentiles, this is what they know. This is their promise until Abraham. Okay, They're looking for this kinsman redeemer. They're looking for the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman to have victory over the serpent. Now, back to chapter 12 then. Because we have a promise made to Abraham and to his seed, which will be important, and Galatians will highlight that, to Abraham and to his seed, the seed singular being Christ, the seed plural being his descendants. But um, you'll note in Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation. That's a promise to Abraham. Um is there anything about making Abraham a great nation that uh, includes the uh, seed of the woman serpent head crusher? Not in itself, no. He's just going to make Jewish people a great nation. I will bless you. Okay? God blesses a lot of folks. There's a lot of blessings in the world. That doesn't bring in, into it the uh, seed of the woman serpent head crushing individual. Promised coming one. And make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. All of that is oriented to Abraham, to his descendants, to the nation of Israel. Those are Jewish promises. Absolutely Jewish promises. Until you get to the last little bit here, verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, all of a sudden, the final clause of the Abrahamic covenant, an unconditional covenant given to Abraham... The final clause says, by the way, in you now, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is what takes the seed of the woman promise made to Eve uh, and brings it down to, uh, to the point here where we can trace the seed of the woman lineage through Abraham. And so there's the promise. Now, in all of that. Do you see any ifs? Do you see any, if you do this, I will do that. If you do this, I will do that. If you don't do this, I will do this other thing. None of that, okay? Uh, all of the what we call conditional stipulations are all reserved for the Mosaic Covenant, okay? This is entirely unconditional. He doesn't say, uh, you know, if you listen to my voice, then I will do this. Or if you obey, then I will do this. Or if you disobey, then I will, don't do, I will not do this. None of that. This is all unconditional promise language of I will, I will, I will. All right? You following all that? See, this is why uh, the, the boastful Hillel ben Shachar in Isaiah 14, who uh, 
had all of his pride, all of his arrogance, who started to utter these I will messages, was uttering blasphemy with every last one of them, putting himself in the position of God himself who can declare the I will statements. Only the eternal I am can declare these I will statements with eternal certainty. All right. Exodus 19. Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, now, 430 years later, they've been under promise all these years. The promise made to Abraham, by the way, was confirmed to Isaac in chapter 25. It was reconfirmed to Jacob in chapter 27. It gets reconfirmed. We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they all operate under promise. Living in a land of promise, receiving blessings of promise, bearing children of promise, and all the rest. They operate under promise until they get uh, redeemed out of Egypt, taken to Mount Sinai, and given the law. And so in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God and the Lord, that's up on the mountain, And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Pick up on that phrase too, by the way, because there's some goofy people today that they're looking at second advent messages on eagles' wings, and they're trying to say, Oh, look at that, eagles' wings, that's the United States Air Force. Bunch of blithering idiots, I want to slap them. Right? Because, well, was it the United States Air Force that brought them out of Egypt? Is that how they got redeemed out of Egypt? The U.S. Air Force uh, airlifted them out of there? So let's, uh, let's handle poetry and idioms the proper, proper way. Now, verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice. What are we doing here? We're starting with an if statement. We're setting conditions. If you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant. Which covenant is this? Because the Abrahamic covenant, under promise, uh, had nothing for them to keep. <laughs> there was nothing for them to keep. It was all the God's I wills, I wills, I wills. There was nothing in there for them to keep. The covenant they're about to receive here at Mount Sinai in terms of Mosaic law. Then... You shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. But see, it's an if-then statement. It's conditional upon their obedience. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is an if-then statement. And when you read the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, you get the full law, all 613 points. Everything that came down, not just the Decalogue, not just the Ten Commandments, but the law itself. And the... And the necessity for them to hold up their end of the bargain in order for God to make these provisions. You see, this is something entirely different than the Abrahamic covenant, which was an I will unconditional covenant on the basis of promise. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord God had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said... And I would love to rewrite this verse. I can't do it because this verse is written under inspiration and recording their response here. But they answered and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Dumb, 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 dumb. You know, it's like signing a contract for something you know you can't keep up with. It's like uh, going on in this housing thing right now. These, These morons that are signing for mortgages they can't afford. But they're signing their name on it saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll pay that every month. How are you going to do that? You know you can't. And here's law. Here's law. And what are they saying? Yep, sign us up. We'll do it. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're going to do, no, we're going to do it. We're going to do all of it. We're not going to break a single point. All right? 
And so the inception of the law here is a very interesting thing because it's so different from the Abrahamic covenant. And that's the point Paul's making in Galatians. Why law then? Since promise came, why 430 years later we're going to have law as a conditional thing? What's that? You know, I would have dearly enjoyed Moses or one of these other elders or somebody stepping up and saying, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Can you imagine? It didn't happen, but what if someone would have said something like that, you know? If Moses would have said, uh, Lord, this doesn't make any sense to us. 430 years ago, you gave us an unconditional covenant. We've been operating under a promise of I will. We can't break that covenant because it's unconditional and it's only on you to fulfill it. And now you want to put us under a conditional covenant where we've got to hold up certain expectations? No, thank you. We, uh, we are an obstinate and stiff-necked people. We, uh, you know, you brought us out of Egypt by grace through faith. That's how we want to operate here in the land now. We don't want to operate under law. So this becomes an interesting study. Now, what is it designed to promote? What is it designed to provide? When you start going through law with the priesthood, with all this other stuff, was it designed to give eternal life? Was the law designed to be, to, to produce the, uh, the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head? See, you could have a, a, a million Jewish people, a uh, hundred million Jewish people, a billion Jewish people, all faithfully following the law, all 613 points, and how was that going to crush the serpent's head? He wasn't going to do it. And it wasn't designed to do it. So, the promise is flawed. And yet, that was his assumption. That was Paul's assumption. And that's everybody's assumption today who thinks that by being a legalist and making God happy, they can earn or deserve something. That God's going to be impressed with me and what I've done for Him. Please. All right. Back to Hebrews then. Let's take it in this order. Hebrews 5, 9, Romans 10, and then Galatians 4. You know what? Law was never designed to do that. Law was never designed to fulfill the redemption of humanity. To provide the internal life inheritance or any other such thing. All right, Hebrews. I like what uh, I didn't include it in here, but we taught it in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, you know, the law is good if you use it lawfully. Meaning, condemning. Don't try to use law for a non-condemning purpose. All right. Use grace gracefully. Use law lawfully. All right, Hebrews 5.9. Notice, and he came and he was born under the law. We'll see that in a text coming up. But um, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Now, why I'm stressing that is because this lawyer was under the assumption that by keeping the law perfectly, he could earn eternal salvation. And yet the reality is, as you see under point three, the perfect fulfillment of the law supplies salvation. Does not earn it, but provides it. That's the false, the false premise, is that adherence to the law produces worthiness to earn eternal life. And that's just wrong. We find out after it's finally fulfilled... Not adhered to, but beyond adhered to, perfectly fulfilled. Perfect fulfillment of the law demonstrates where it doesn't produce worthiness, demonstrates a worthiness already possessed to provide eternal life. Can you see that difference? This man was keeping the law so he could earn eternal life. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law so he could provide eternal life. It's, uh, it's interesting in the wisdom of the Father's plan to create such an impossibility. 
<laughs> we use that in the walkthrough, uh, the home Bible walkthrough that we do. You know, we talk about Moses giving the law on Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments and the Ark of the Covenant, blueprints for the tabernacle and all that. And then we talk about the Ten Commandments and which ones have you broken and who's kept them all and nobody's kept them all. And, and, and then you, you ask, well, now, why does God give a whole bunch of rules that nobody can keep? And then you don't answer it. You just keep going through your walkthrough because there is no answer till you get to Jesus Christ in the Gospels. All right, back to Romans 10 now, 3 through 5. When he talks about the Jews, oh, he, he wants to save them. Paul does so badly. My heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. You know, I mean, do you know folks that are just so, so, so absolutely religious that they can't even get saved? <laughs> they are so blinded by their religion that the gospel is, is a stumbling block. That's Paul here with the Jewish folks. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They're so busy serving God, they, they can't get saved. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. See, what this lawyer was doing? Does righteousness come from the law? What he was trying for? Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Faith in Christ. Place your faith in Christ and the reality hits you that observing the law produces no righteousness whatsoever. None. Zero. Moses writes, the man who practices righteousness, which is based on law, well, shall live by that righteousness, which, guess what? Means you're a curse because you haven't kept it perfectly. But righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. So, anyway, this is the, the impact there. Is it going to be on the basis of law or on the basis of faith? That's the true righteousness. Finally, go back to Galatians again. We spent a little bit of time already in, in chapter 3. We get to move on to chapter 4 now. Galatians 4. And this is interesting too. Um, we, we finally figure out why the law then, in verse 19. Let me back up to chapter 3 and get the rest of Galatians 3 and then close up here with chapter 4. Why the law then? It was added on account of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. See, it goes back to the seed, the seed of the woman, the seed promised to Abraham. You'll notice in verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It is not saying to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one seed and to your seed, that is, Christ. See, Paul understood that seed of the woman promised from Abraham to, uh, from Adam to Abraham, to David, and so forth. That's why we uh, feature this in the uh, upcoming ABC Reader. So, uh, why the law then? Added on account of transgressions. Uh, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Not to whom the law had been made, unto whom the promise had been made. And... Um, some other things. Why the law then? And is it contrary to the promises? Does it nullify the promise? Does it violate the promise? May it never be. And in fact, it's given so as to illustrate how unrighteous we are and how perfect God is. Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And we find out that law is a tutor. Verse 24, law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we no longer are under a tutor. A whole lot of doctrine there, but the idea that uh, you don't need, <laughs> right? You don't need the nanny you used to have when you were a little kid. We trust that once you are an adult, and prior to becoming an adult, you get to the point as a child where you no longer need the nanny, the tutor, the pedagogue that you used to have. Law serve that function in its dispensational role. 
But it's done. Why do people want to go back to the elementary things, go back to their witness, go back to their tutor? So, down to chapter 4 then. And it's kind of neat the way this starts out. I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave. You know, the, the heir, the free kid, and the slave kid, they're just kids. They're going to be under teaching. The only difference is, is that the heir is going to grow up <laughs> and, and come out from under that tutor and actually be the master. So, uh, you see, he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But we've got to get out of the tutor that is out of from under law. The purpose of God was to replace law with grace, the operational function for the church age. So in the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Notice, born of a woman, that's seed of the woman promise. But then also born under the law. That's why he was born in the dispensation of Israel, age of law. So that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. Alright, so, this uh, lawyer wanted to know what he could do to earn eternal life. And yet, the reality is, Jesus Christ was going to do everything necessary, fulfilling the law, to provide eternal life. And that's the contrast there. Point C then, as we return back to Luke 10, the last sub-point under this, Jesus affirmed the lawyer's synthesis, doctrinal synthesis, and he let the fallacy continue for the moment. He let the fallacy continue for the moment. <laughs> That's a lot of wisdom right there. Sometimes I blow it. I don't, I'm not as patient as the Lord. I'm not as wise, certainly. Um, if I, a lot of times if I overhear somebody with a wrong approach to something, <laughs> I want to straighten that out. Okay? And it may be that for the moment, it's better to, to let it lie until such time as other lessons can come in first larger picture lessons maybe or other elements maybe that might come in and then some of these other matters can be ironed out and sorted out see you know it might be if i've got a guy who's so wrapped up in different things for instance he thinks uh you know uh is uh, you know anybody that smokes is going to die and go to hell or drinking alcohol is of the devil or, or going to a movie or dancing or whatever he's got this list well rather than deal with one particular little issue Maybe you could step back and say, you know what, there's a larger picture here. Perhaps we should start teaching elements of grace. We, we should start teaching contrast from law to grace, from Israel to the church. We should start teaching truths as it relates to the reality of our priesthood in Christ and the church age. We start letting the Word of God transform. Those other things will get changed down the road in time. But see, there's a bigger underlying picture that's, that's being dealt with first and foremost. And that's what's happening here. The Lord's going to let that fallacy continue for the moment. Loving the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Okay, yeah, you got it. That's fine. You can earn eternal life. But now let me tell you something else. Let me tell you who your neighbor is. See, and so he's going to leave him under this impression that he can work for eternal life only for the moment, so that he can teach this principle about who is your neighbor to show him the impossibility about working for eternal life. And finally, this, this lawyer, he can't handle it. You mean the, the Samaritan? That's the neighbor? And, and what he does for this man that got robbed and beaten and left for dead, we'll, we'll deal with this next week and then go through. You know the story already, but we'll give you some of the details in that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, this lawyer, he doesn't have that kind of love. So when he walks away from this conversation and he knows he doesn't have, he cannot love his neighbor the way Christ just defined love your neighbor, what's he left with to conclude about earning his inheritance of eternal life. 
he's left to conclude he can't do it. He absolutely can't do it. And so, in the end, even though Christ let the fallacy continue for the moment, at the end of the lesson, the message has gotten across. All right. Next week, we'll come back and hit point five about the parable. How the Good Samaritan parable illustrates unconditional, sacrificial, integrity, love. And how it does so in a timeless manner. It's not just applicable under the law. It's applicable under grace. It's applicable in tribulation. It's applicable in millennium. It was applicable in the Garden of Eden. It's applicable. It's a timeless principle of agape love. A timeless application of agape love. Unconditional, sacrificial, integrity, love. In other words, agape. Good Samaritan parable illustrates agape in a timeless manner. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word for our time together today. And Father, uh, pray that perhaps on this day we've been equipped just a little bit more to understand an unconditional covenant versus conditional covenants, promises versus law, law versus grace, and how thankful we are that inheriting eternal life does not depend on what good thing we can do because none of us deserves it. And I thank you that he fulfilled the law to provide eternal life. And it's not based on what we can do, it's what he did. And by faith we um, are credited to him, he's credited to us, Father. His righteousness imputed to our account, our sins laid on him. Thank you for that, thank you for that grace. Thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name, amen.